Lord Jesus, I just pray that is our prayer and our hope this morning that we can find our identity in you, that you are enough for us. Lord Jesus, uh, if there is something we have learned over the course of the last few years is that life and the circumstances of life are frail and faulty and fickle. And it is you that we come to and we need a rock. We need stability. We need a foundation. We need assurance. And Lord Jesus, we can find that in you. And some of us find that in you and some of us need to. We're desperate to find that, to find you. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw us to you this morning in a very profound way. Those that have gathered here this morning, thank you for prompting them. Thank you that they have responded and that we have gathered here. And for those that are online through live stream, we thank you for that. And those that will even watch this live stream sometime during the week, Lord Jesus, you have an appointment with us here. And so we ask that your will be done. Your Holy Spirit, your will be done on earth here at Westview and in Calgary. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gary. I'm another one of the pastors here at Westview. Thank you for joining us online. Thank you for coming to the service here. Good to see you. Some of you haven't seen in a while. It's good to have you here. Yes, it's good. Um, Last week, was it last week? Uh, our daughter, anyway, the last 10 days, our daughter, one of our daughters was in town, and so we had some time to do some recreational things here in, in Calgary, and uh, we miss her, and it's good when she's here, and then we miss her when she goes, and uh, all of that, but it was really wonderful. I want to do a bit of a, an exercise with you here this morning, and uh, if uh, Reese, I don't know if there's some pens or some writing utensils back there. You're all going to need some, uh, something to write with or use your phone. So if you don't have something to write with, um, we can get something for you to write with. You're going to have to put your hand up or whatever, and uh, we'll get some, some uh, writing utensils to you. So you. Because this is, we really want you to engage with this, um, and the best way for that to happen is if you're going to write or respond, so use something to write with or your phone. So this is an ideas exercise. So I'm going to give a word to you, and then you're going to write down what comes to mind. There's nothing sort of, uh, I'm not trying to trick you here or anything, so you get to be honest. No one's going to read it except you. You don't have to hand it in. Okay? Uh, so I'm going to give you a word, and you write down what comes to mind. So the first I'm going to give you is top, or on top. Tops. What comes to mind when you hear top or on top or tops? Something that comes to mind. Anything at all. Now, conversely, bottom. We're on the bottom. The bottom. On the bottom. What comes to mind? Ah, I'm going to 
just divert for a, a little bit because this is going to prime you for what's happening in the fall. And we've mentioned this a little bit, but now I'm going to give you two other words. Uh, here's another word. What comes to mind when you hear the word masculine? Masculine. What comes to mind? You got to write quickly or type on your phone quickly because what comes to mind when you hear the word feminine? Feminine. Oh, what comes to mind? Feminine. Okay, now I'm going to give you a couple more uh, very quickly here. Submit. The word submit. What comes to mind? It can be a feeling. It can be a color. It can be anything. Just write down honestly, transparently, what comes to mind when you hear the word submit. Ah, here's another one. You know, we're almost done. Greatness. Greatness. When you hear the word greatness, what do you think of when you hear the word greatness? And then here's one final one. Uh, humble. Humble. What comes to mind when you hear the word or the term humble? All right. I want you to also write down this. Who is somebody that is one of your biggest influences? Who's somebody that is like a big, has been a big influence in your life? Or somebody that you follow on the feeds? Right? Who's someone that you definitely follow? You, you check out their Insta, you're there, whatever, Facebook, Insta, you're, who you following? My question for us this morning, so hopefully you got, got that written down. The question that we're exploring tomorrow, uh, this morning as we're looking in, in James is, who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? And when I say listen, it's more than just hear. Who we listen to? Who are we giving authority to speak into and shape the way we live? Who are we giving authority to shape the way we live? In a little while from now, we will have a time of what I call Q&R, question and response, and it's an opportunity for you to interact on the uh, sermon and on the text and what we're talking about here this morning, and you can ask questions. You can text or email to ask at westviewchurch.ca. You can do that if you're live streaming. You can do that here, or you can stand up uh, where you are, and we'll bring a microphone to you. And I'm not at all offended if you have your phone out because you might have your Bible on there. You might be typing, a texting a question, whatever it is. We like your questions. You ask good ones. And when you share it with us, most likely other people are thinking or wondering about the same question. So please participate in that. Next Sunday, I'm pretty excited. We were talking about, um, you know, sort of this Q&R and some of the different uh, format uh, things that are happening next week. I'm really looking forward to interacting with the children. They will, be, they will remain in the service. And so uh, the start of the sermon is going to be a chance to interact with the kids next Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. We might even involve some adults um, if you're lucky. Uh, but we certainly want to involve the, the children. So I'm, I'm pumped about that. Let's go to James chapter 4. Starting at verse 1. 
those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. Well, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And James is identifying within the congregation that there are these conflicts and these disputes that are going on in the congregation. And what he's identifying is that the battlefield of these disputes and these conflicts is the inner person. It's, it begins, the battle, this conflict and these disputes, the battlefield is our inner person, but it spills out into these relationships and in, into our social fabric. So it starts in our inner being and then spills out into the relationships that we have with people. And he says, you, you want something and you don't have it, so you commit murder. And we already know from Jesus that murder is more than just ending somebody's life. Jesus says, if you hate somebody or you insult somebody, you call people names, that is also like murder. Then James says, you know, you, you covet something, you're jealous for somebody else's possessions, but you don't have them. And so there's these disputes, poleamo, where we get polemic from, that Greek word, is these conflicts arise between people. And then he says, you pray, but you don't receive what you pray about. And then he calls out the praying, because when people are praying, he says in his congregation, people are praying, but what they're praying for is that they want to get things, and they want to get things that they can use for their own pleasures, and that's what they're calling prayer. Verse 4, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James is identifying that there are these two competing voices, while really there are these two battling worlds that are on this collision course that we are living in. And then he uses this word adultery. This really, this there are spiritual implications for what is going on here. And he uses the word adulterer because what is going on with the congregation is that they are yielding to the world and yielding to the spiritual forces of wickedness and they are neglecting and turning their back on God, the Creator. And James and throughout Scripture that reference to neglecting God and turning and yielding to the devil is used to, the term is adulterer or adultery. Of forsaking God, forsaking the love of God, and instead turning and yielding and being in relationship with the 
spiritual forces of wickedness. Now, when he uses the term world here, of course, he's not meaning people. The Greek word is cosmos here. He's not meaning uh, being in love with people is being enemy of God. Of course not, for God so loved the world, okay? What he's talking about here, cosmos, world, is the systems and structures, the structures of the world that are at odds with the kingdom of God. There are these particular, sometimes the phrase is called a worldview, but the way the secular world works and functions, that is antithetical to the kingdom of God and the way God functions and works. And he identifies at least two in here, these systems and these processes in this secular age, both in the first century and in the 21st century. And the first is this um, concept of this ladder of prestige and power. So the worldview would say that greatness, that word greatness, is about being on top. It's about being first. It's about being a ruler. It's about being a master. Maybe it even has to do with being a man. Maybe it has to do with certain ethnicities. That's the secular worldview when it comes to the understanding the idea of greatness. This ladder of prestige and power. And it's the, the fundamental here is comparison and domination. You can hear it in James' language. This comparison, comparing to other people and domination being over them. And then he talks about this word craving or desire. And that's a, a concept he brought up in the first chapter. And remember that sermon title, Constant Cravings. This idea that humans are constantly craving. And then we align with the world views. We align with this. We begin to clamor up this ladder of prestige and power. And then we use this metaphor of looking down at people, which is a posture of arrogance. Because pride and prestige ride together. And the other system in the secular worldview that is antithetical and, and juxtaposed to the kingdom of God is what Martha Moore Kish, the, uh, a female theologian that I read, I really appreciate her writing, and she uh, identifies and talks about the myth of scarcity. And that's also embedded in what James is talking about. This myth of scarcity. That is that there aren't enough resources to go around. Back in my uh, business days in Toronto, we would, did this one exercise with professional project managers. And the exercise was a group of people would be given cards of things that they were supposed to. Uh, it was a, a, a game where they were supposed to acquire. They had certain uh, monetary resources and they were supposed to acquire certain resources and each one was given different cards and different work to do. And then the resources were put in the middle. And they would go around and they would try and get this sorted out. And each one was trying to uh, accomplish their goals. And at the end of the exercise, all the PMPs that were in the room, none of them was successful in getting what they had to get. And they concluded that the problem was that there weren't enough resources for each person to achieve their goal. Then we did the exercise a second time. And the instruction this time, the first time there was no instruction and in 
Inherently, the PMPs competed with each other without anybody having to say anything. The second time around, the instruction was cooperate. And you know what happened? Honestly, when it was all over, everybody had the check marks on their card and there were resources left over in the middle of the room. See, the scripture is saying that God is telling us that really from the God who created, there isn't a limitation or a scarcity of resources. But the world tells us that. And it creates competition and it creates an us versus them attitude. And the people that have, I read an article the other day that was called the haves and the have yachts. But you know, you might say, well, that's, I, that doesn't happen today. It's not in our modern civilized environment. Well, I have a symbol to illustrate the myth, the lie of scarcity that occurred in the last couple of years, symbolic of the COVID crisis. And Kimberly and I observed this while we were still in Florence, and it boggled our minds. I'm not even going to say anything. The myth of scarcity. I rest my case. <laughs> We're sitting in Florence and seeing people in Canada freaking out. Man. So how, did, how do we get here? Do you recall, um, it becomes instinctual and habitual. That we start subscribing to and adhering to the worldviews, And it's instinctual and habitual to the point where we're not even aware that we're doing this. In my former office, the uh, people would do their driving test. I could see them outside my office window. And one of the things they were learning to do was parallel park. But how many of you remember when you started learning to drive and you were told that you had to use your right foot for the accelerator, but you also had to use the same foot for the brake. And you're going, what? I would rather use two feet. But you had to use the accelerator and then use the brake, and that was all awkward, and you're trying to figure it out. And then you had to do a shoulder check, and the whole thing seemed hanky and, un, uh, and weird and all of that. And then, oh, forget about if you had to use the clutch and go manual. I'm not even going to get started. But you would do that, and now, after a couple of years, or whatever the case is, now when you're driving, it's entirely instinctual. You don't think about it at all. Because what has moved from explicit memory, what you were paying attention to and learning, explicit memory, has turned into implicit memory, and you're, you've learned, and now you've got these habits and instincts. Dr. Eric Kandel, who's... Uh, was he, he's passed away, but a Nobel Prize winner, psychologist, uh, scientist, and so on. He talks about something that comes before um, this explicit memory. He says, we have selective attention, which means we are picking and choosing what we are going to learn and what we're going to submit ourselves to. It's called selective attention. And it, it essentially codes what we're going to learn and what we're going to focus and, and think about. 
And he, writing in his book, he quotes, and I wanted to read this because uh, rather than just, because it's so good. So he quotes another doctor, James Williams, and in this seminal work on the principles of psychology, and he describes this. Listen, millions of items. So this is what's happening, and, and, and the, the scientists are explaining what James was writing about theologically. Millions of items. This is Dr. William James now, as quoted by Eric Kendall in his book. Millions of items are present to many, are, are present to my senses, which never properly enter my experience. Why? Because they have no interest for me. My experience is what I agree to attend to. Everyone knows what attention is. It is the taking possession uh, by the mind in clear and vivid form of one out of what seem several simultaneously possible objects or trains of thought. Taking possession by the mind. Focalization, concentration of consciousness are at its essence. It implies withdrawal from some things in order to deal effectively with other things. It requires, with, it implies withdrawing from some things in order to deal effectively with other things. So now we come to this question. If, I, if you would look at your list. I'm not going to ask you to read this out or whatever, but on your list, what I wonder is, uh, wh what is, what is the reference or the sources for those ideas and thoughts that you have that are associated with those words? Where are you getting those ideas from? What is the source of those ideas? Who are we listening to? It turns out that from a COVID perspective, we actually do spend some time listening to the world. In fact, James, at one point, he says, uh, he refers to the world, the cosmos, and these systems and structures as the devil. He per personifies it. But obviously, we do spend time, whether we uh, realize it or not, but we are influenced and we hear from and are influenced by the world around us. So now that we know this, because this is what James is doing, is he is making the congregation aware of the currents within which we are floating. So he brings awareness to the congregation and to us. But now that we know, what can we do in order to now instead submit, what can we do to listen to and follow the Lord Jesus Christ instead and be kingdom people instead of worldview people. Kingdom people don't freak out over this. It, or, or a lot of the definitions and the things that we're thinking through. So what can we do? Here's what James says in 4 verse 6. But he gives all the more grace therefore... Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The first thing James points out is, even though there are admittedly times when we're listening and we're following in the currents of the world, God is gracious. The reality, the real world is that our creator is gracious with us. Amen. 
the reality is that even though sometimes we yield to the enemy and we don't submit to the Lord, we follow another way and not our own way. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in compassion. Amen and amen. That's the reality that we live in. That's the real world. And then he goes on to say this. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Submit. Draw near. And gizzle. Engage. James came to this very honestly by observing his brother, Jesus, who drew near to his heavenly father. Jesus drew near. This was a divine response, a divine uh, uh, action, this aspect of drawing near. Jesus drew near in the garden. God drew near. When Adam and Eve were in trouble, God drew near. When the Israelites kept being adulterous, when they kept yielding and turning their back, God drew near. When the world finally needed a Savior in person and someone to show what it means and looks like to be perfectly human, God draws near and the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And Jesus shows us what it's like to be perfectly, beautifully, wonderfully human. And He does this. One of His most profound patterns is that he draws near to the heavenly father and he upends the world views that's what caused the conflict and ultimately what got him killed he upends and greatness for jesus was to submit greatness for jesus was to be a servant greatness was to be last greatness was children Greatness was giving the evangelistic word that was Jesus was risen from the dead, giving that to a woman to tell the rest of the world. Greatness was a proclamation to the shepherds in the field that were the lowest of the low. The announcement given to them. He upends it. The 40 days that he had in the desert submitting and drawing close to the Lord unraveled the 40 years of desperation and idolatry of the Israelites in the desert. Him drawing near in the Garden of Gethsemane was unraveling all of that horrific, adulterous attitude of Adam and Eve and betrayal in the Garden of Eden. Over and over again, Jesus draws near. This pattern, if you read the book of Luke, you see this pattern of Jesus drawing near, Jesus drawing near. The disciples noticed Jesus, the Son of Man, drawing near the Heavenly Father. So often he would draw near, draw near. Eventually the disciples, you know what the disciples, they said, you know what, Jesus, we notice that you're drawing near all the time. Can you teach us to draw near? I think we're getting it. Teach us. Teach us. And Jesus says, Our Father who art in heaven. And he begins to teach them. Simply, 
how to draw near. The Israelites, as James identifies, people before get tossed around. They're like waves. He describes like waves. The wind comes and just pushes water, creates a wave, and then the wind blows this way, and the waves go this way, and the wind blows this way, and the waves go this way. It's being tossed around like waves. And he describes the people being stuck and being tossed around. And that's why he says, purify your hearts. Cardea, it's not the organ, it's the inner being. Purify your inner being. Purify our inner beings, he is saying. Double-minded, this dipskos of two minds being this way and that way, trying to be part of the world and follow the ways of the world and follow the ways of God and and uh, serving financially, you know, trying to serve mammon and trying to serve wealth, but also trying to serve God and trying to hold all that together. And that's double-minded. And what James is saying is instead, be single-minded, be focused, draw near and engage with the Lord and be kingdom people and be focused. And his advice in all of this is we have to change the channel and tune in to the living Lord Jesus Christ. And that will require a daily, regular practice of changing the channel and tuning in. And what James says to the congregation in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, if you submit to the Lord, you will be exalted. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Jesus was stewarding God's authority. And Paul writes in Philippians that he was highly exalted. What will it look like for the Westview to be exalted? What will it look like for us to humble ourselves before the Lord when we gather together, we submit to the Lord, we humble ourselves before the Lord? What will it look like to be exalted before the Lord? Well, I believe that there will be a harvest. I believe that there will be the fruit of the Spirit will grow and flourish. It doesn't mean that we'll have greatness as in prestige or profile or be on the news. But we will experience the work and the power of the Holy Spirit among us and through us. And people will come to a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The children, the youth, the young adults, the old adults. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, He will exalt us. Not only in the future, but in the present as well. As we draw near. But as the scientists describe, that requires what they call selective attention. It means ignoring something in order to yield and submit to something else. And that's a pretty big wager, especially if we're going through difficulties. To actually believe wholeheartedly that I'm going to submit and humble myself and come to the Lord. That's a big wager if you're have health struggles or you have relationship struggles or you have work struggles and you say, I'm going to submit, I'm going to draw near to the Lord. That's a big wager because what if, 
What if the Lord doesn't come through? What if he isn't actually listening to me? What if he actually isn't involved in the world around us? What if, what if, what if? And that is what James refers to as this doubting and this double-mindedness. But rather, we change the channel and we focus and we say, Lord, I believe because the world has nothing to offer. It can tip in a heartbeat. But you, Lord, are present. You are the creator of the universe. You are the son of God who rose again on the third day. I'm submitting myself and giving my life to you and all that that means. Because the salvation, the gospel that we preach is more than only salvation for a ticket to heaven sometime down the road. God's plan for salvation and the gospel message is about saving us and rescuing us and helping us in the present. We are saved, but we also need to be saved and we need that kind of salvific work in the present as well as in the future. And he is a way maker. He is a way maker when there is no way. He makes a way. And so we gather. We gather as followers of Jesus. We gather as kingdom people. We come from different places in Calgary. And we gather together as a form of submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because it's therapy, because, but because we're proclaiming that he is Lord, he is king, and not the world around us. And as we live this way and we give witness to this way, people around begin to understand the kingdom of God in that way of living. We become, as one writer says, very conspicuous in our sharing we become generous people as opposed to consumption people. We are um, lavishly forgiving. We are abundantly gracious and merciful. The kingdom of God. And we are a place of shalom. Of peace in the midst of anxiety and hysteria. I want to pause here for a short Q&R. If you have a question that you want to ask or text or email, you can do that or stand where you are. And we will respond to your questions. Reese has the iPad. I'm going to ask at the same time as you're thinking about your questions, I'm going to ask the music team to come up as well. don't see the Kleenex box, so I'm going to use this. <laughs> Questions. Something that's on your mind, a concern, a question, you're not so sure, you want to push back. All right. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Memorize these verses. Oh, memorize these verses. Submit, therefore, to the Lord. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to the God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, you know, I want to tell you what you will hear. This melody of life. I like jazz music and one of the reasons I like jazz is because even though there's all these different instrumentations and it seems like the musicians are doing their own thing. They're not really but they're playing along. But through it, you can hear this melody. There's, there's a melody. There's a tune that still carries on. And even they're, they're kind of playing with it. But there's this tune that's carrying on. And I want to tell you that our Creator has a melody. And that melody begins with Him inviting us to Him. He is inviting us to Him. So when James says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The Lord is drawing near and He's inviting you. And He's inviting you. He's inviting us. And He says, come come to me. Come to me. You know, you... Whether you're, you're, you're sick, whether you have anxieties or fears, whether you have job issues, whether you've been hurt by the church... Whether you don't even know if what we're talking about is yet real for you. Our Creator is gracious and merciful. And He is inviting you. And you know what part of that melody is? That other part of the melody is? He's inviting you. He says, come to me. And you know what else He's saying? He says, I love you. He says, I love you. So, the way our Creator begins His conversation. He starts... His conversation by saying, I love you. I made you. Come to me. I want to explain. There's one thing. You know, how do we draw near? We draw near when we gather together. My uh, thesis supervisor for my doctoral program's name is Dr. Charles Stone. And he wrote a book called Holy Noticing. Holy noticing. And the first part of it, he has this acronym breathe. And this first part is to breathe, to breathe in and out, the, what he calls a breath prayer. So we want to, if we want to draw near to the Lord, we just breathe in and breathe out and we say, Jesus, you are near. I take in the Holy Spirit and you are near. And he says, just ponder and yield yourself. You can do that anywhere at any time. The music team, the worship team is going to lead us in this song. They're singing Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Where Jesus says, come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. But then he says, take up my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, Jesus says. Jesus says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble doesn't mean weak. You know how strong it requires a person to be humble? Jesus says, I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul.